0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 2014, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi closed the Planning Commission, which he accused of stifling the country's growth and being a holdover from its time as a socialist country. It was an ignoble end to the government body, which in the early days of independence wrote the country's five-year plans for economic development. Nikhil Menon, in his first book, Planning Democracy, Modern India's Quest for Development from Cambridge University Press, looks at how India's efforts towards economic planning helped the country find a path between Western and Soviet economic models, supercharge the growth of statistics, and try to foster a more public democracy. Nikhil Menon is a historian of modern South Asia specializing in the political and economic history of 20th century India. His research explores the histories of democracy and development in independent India. Today, Nikhil and I talk about planning and democracy, statistics, and perhaps one of the book's central figures, Professor Mahala Nobis, the father of Indian statistics. So, Nikhil, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about planning democracy. You know, maybe let's start with the actual just subject of your book. Why did you want to make India's economic planning um, the topic of of the history you wanted
1: to write? Uh, firstly, thank you, Nicholas, for, for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Um, So the book that I wrote, Planning Democracy, is based on research that I did for my PhD. And and while I applied for the PhD, I was actually proposing to work on a very different subject. But I think just being in a new intellectual environment, uh, I moved continents uh, for my PhD. And being in this new intellectual environment, I think just um, led me to looking to new pastures. And I increasingly came to be drawn to the idea of studying how independent India made its way after centuries of foreign rule. Uh, The history of independent India is something that, uh, while it is very important, obviously is not, or at least was not till I was in college, uh, a subject that you can study in history courses. Our histories tended to end with uh, August 15th, 1947, when India got independence from British colonial rule. So... Uh, It's that's the terrain that I want to look into. And planning was a subject that I'd read about in newspapers growing up or on news shows. Uh, But I felt that we didn't have or know enough about why India decided to take up the five-year plans in the first place. Growing up in the 1990s, uh, planning was very unfashionable as India marketized and liberalized its economy. But yet, surprising as it may be, I found that there was a time when planning was actually fashionable, uh, and I want to uncover how planning became quite so mainstream in public policy, so desirable to a range of political parties, and, and so central really to the story of modern independent India. And and what appealed to me was not the question really of whether these five-year plans succeeded or failed, but why India adopted them in the first place. And and while when I first entered the archives, like most scholars or researchers, I didn't have a a very clear idea of what the books uh sort of uh, you know architecture would look like uh and in some sense i just allowed myself to be led by the archive and that's what led me to the themes of the book uh which are on the history of india's statistical infrastructure india's first computers and the role played by popular culture bollywood and and even hindu aesthetics in promoting the five-year plans
0: right and i I have questions on a lot of those topics but i i want to my next question you know, if if your book has a main character, it's um, Professor Mahalanobis, who's um, I think kind of often seen as as the father of Indian statistics. He kind of grows this whole division, this whole discipline um, out out of seemingly nothing. Uh, and I do say character; he really he seems to be flying all over the world, going to parties, meeting a lot of other interesting academics. <laughs> More meetings than parties. Well, meetings and parties, yes, yes. Um, salons maybe is the better more. Um but but uh but he's meeting all these all these important people, uh, important economists. Um but who exactly was he and, and and how important is he to 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 this history you're trying to explain?
1: Yeah, I I think that Nobis is really a figure that we ought to know much more about. He was quite simply one of the most influential Indians of his generation, you know, someone born in the late 19th century. He grows up this culturally refined physicist, educated at Presidency College in Calcutta and then King's College at Cambridge. He was, uh, by all accounts, brilliant, charismatic, but also a very, very serious uh, figure, someone who was... Uh, sort of polymathic, you know, uh, a physicist, as I said, somebody who becomes a sort of self-taught statistician, but also versed in ancient Indian Sanskrit texts, uh, somebody who possesses a discerning ear for Bengali poetry, dabbles in architecture as well, Uh, but also he's someone who's really animated by a sense of purpose, who wants his academic work to matter for nation building. And his interest in statistics begins quite by accident, uh, and for a few decades, he really wears two hats as a lecturer of physics back at Presidency College in Calcutta, but also as a sort of almost side hustle, India's leading statistician on the side. Uh, and he becomes a quickly becomes a global pioneer in the use of large-scale sample surveys, which is a a new uh, kind of experimental statistics, which he pioneers uh, in India. And which he conducts through the Indian Statistical Institute, uh, an institute which exists till today as one of India's leading uh, research organizations in the social sciences and which he founds in the early 1930s. And by the time India wins independence, Mahalanobis is already a celebrated uh, scientist, uh, more so for his statistical work than his work as a physicist. Uh, and he is increasingly coming to be uh, associated with this social scientific practice that is used now across the world. Uh, and for example in in 1945 he's elected to the royal society and what i trace over the book is the next two decades uh, of independent india when india when, when mahonobis mm-hmm. or the professor as i as i refer to him because many of his contemporaries refer to him just as the professor Uh, Mahal Nobis would design India's National Sample Survey, which India uses till this day. He would be instrumental in bringing India's first two digital computers. He would be critical in establishing India's data infrastructure, its statistical infrastructure. Uh, He would author also, perhaps most importantly, the second five-year plan, which broadly lays out the template for India's economic policy from the 1950s till the 1990s. So a really, really important figure. And A common view about why Mahalanobis comes to play this really important role in India's economic history is because of his proximity to India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. And in my book, I try to argue against this and say that this is a really unsatisfactory explanation, and it's one that's kind of too personality-centric. Because Mahalanobis and Nehru weren't family members, nor were they close friends uh, from their youth, uh, and there were many other economists in the country. Uh, And so I think the, the reason for... Mahalo position in Indian economic history is more structural. And that structural reason is that centralized planning, which India committed to after independence, required huge masses of data about the economy. And that is the kind of data that India lacked. And then, just as now, there existed this somewhat utopian view that if you had adequate data, that then the solution to India's economic problems would be apparent. And Mahalanobis and the Indian Statistical Institute offered ways by which planners could gather this data as pioneers in data infrastructure at this point in Indian history. And so, through the National Sample Survey, which he helped set up, through the Central Statistical Organization, which he ha- is at the helm of, uh, it, uh, it's through these things that Mahalanobis comes to be associated with planning. And we can't just assign that to, um, you know, random friendship. It, it- in reading your
0: book, I mean it shows it takes time for statistics to kind of take this role in um India's planning. You know, I one of the stories I'm remembering from the beginning of your book is where um where they put the statisticians against the enumerators um as a way to prove who was actually the most um accurate in counting yields. And it turned out that statistics were more accurate than actually sending people to count the yields, I guess in person and, and by hand. Um but i think throughout the book there's all these there's tensions with um other departments there's tensions there's fights over resources um i mean how easy or or how difficult was it for artistic to kind of really get this to get this role in in this in India's planning,
1: yeah, I think that, that the the early 20th century in India is also maps onto the rise of statistics as a scientific discipline globally as well. Uh, and so, in at the turn of the century, we are we confront a situation where Nobis uh, is from the uh, you know in, after the First World War is increasingly interested in statistics, in especially this, the, the 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 emerging science of sampling. But he finds that in India, statistics isn't taken seriously. He finds that, for example, at the Indian Science Congress, uh, statistics would not be given a separate section because it was just not considered a science. Uh, one scientist, in fact, snidely remarks that if you were to give statistics a section, you might as well give astrology another. Uh, and so this is a bitter complaint, Martin Obis. And what happens effectively over the, from the 1920s to the 1940s is from being in a situation where statistics would be denied its own section at the Indian Science Congress, by 1946 or 47, Mahalanobis is the chairperson of the Indian Science Congress as a statistician. Right, so it really gives you a sense of the quite meteoric rise in the status of this science amongst other sciences. Uh, and 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 part of the ways in which Mahalanobis proves the worth of, of sampling is by these kinds of uh, these tests that uh, he's able to sail through with flying colors. Uh, in which, as you as you suggested, when uh, the, the the colonial government of Bengal was trying to estimate jute yields. They tried to test this this new method that Mahalanobis was was promoting that of large scale sample surveys against that of plot to plot enumeration. And what they found is that not only was um, the, the 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 errors with the plot to plot enumeration was about sixteen percent, whereas it was much much lower with the sample surveys also it was a fraction of the cost to do a sample survey right so it really sort of offers proof of concept uh, in tests such as these Um, but, but what you also see during this period is a is that while sample serving is coming to be seen as a legitimate science in the early 20th century it still isn't used at a national level in india partly because of the nature of colonial statistics which from the late 19th century onwards was disaggregated, done by separate provinces, and was focused on administration and trade alone. And so national statistics and the effort to build a national statistical infrastructure would really be a post-colonial phenomenon, something that would begin in the 1950s. Uh, And the Indian statistical infrastructure, I argue in the book, rises not just organically because the science itself is proving itself, but in response to the demands of centralized planning. It is because India commits itself to a centralized five-year plan-based system for the economy that India's leaders are now suddenly looking around for um, institutions and individuals that can spearhead this effort to gather data at a level that the state had not required during the colonial period. And it's because of this sort of sterling reputation of Mahalanobis and the emerging science of statistics and large scale sample surveys and the Indian Statistical Institute that they then come to be seen as the prime candidates for this transformation and for the erection of this new data infrastructure that would become to be associated with the Central Statistical Organization, the National Sample Survey uh, and other organizations that, that worked for it. And the National Sample Survey really was a, a, a quite extraordinary venture. It was viewed by contemporary scientists and statisticians across the world with admiration, even awe. The sheer scale seemed foolhardy to many, even to statisticians who were, you know, sympathetic to Mahalanobis. And in the book, I talk about some of the challenges that the that the National Sample Survey surveyors had to deal with. They were contending with dealing with. Dozens of languages, different units of measurements, uh, having to pass snow-filled mountains, thick forests with man-eating tigers, uh, dealing with with Adivasis or or tribal populations that didn't understand the enterprise and why there were these National Sample Survey investigators across the country asking them about their, you know, what kinds of assets they had. Uh, But this survey, which began in 1951, uh, continues to today, and it, it is the most important measure by which way, by which uh, method, by which India and the Indian state knows about the economic life of its citizens. Um, and, and as, you know, as the Nobel Prize winning economist, Angus Deaton, has said that, you know, where Mahalanobis led, the rest of the world followed in, in terms of instituting sample surveys of household income and, and expenditure in mainstream Economic practice across the world, and today we have we've got to the point today where the new UN Statistical Commission uh, uh, exists. There is a UN subcommission on sample surveys, and the World Bank and the UN both conduct uh, these kinds of large-scale sample surveys in in more than one hundred countries across the world. So, I I want to get back to um, to
0: talk about economic planning um, and kind of also kind of how geopolitics the cold war plays into this you know india and Mahalanobis, india well tries to chart kind of a non-aligned path between uh the u.s and the soviet union um how how was that reflected in its economic planning or in its attempts to kind of develop these economic plans
1: Yes. uh, So uh, it's a well-known fact that India after independence under Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru is one of the leaders in the non-aligned movement during the Cold War. It's a stance which is based on the principle that uh, as recently decolonized countries, um, we do not want to once again be ensnared by uh, sort of global power politics. We do not want to become a satellite to either the United States or the Soviet Union. And so we will chart our own path and not sort of ally ourselves with either of these global superpowers that are in competition. And so my book explores how India tries to, in some ways, how India's planning project is the domestic reflection of that. Uh, foreign policy vision, and it explores how India tries to combine both Soviet-inspired socialist five-year plans with Western liberal democracy during the Cold War, which of course pits these as uh, you know institutionally and ideologically incompatible. Uh, and this is reflected in the nature of Indian planning, which is subjected, uh, as Western liberal democracies are, subjected to democratic popular pressure through the mechanism of 5 year, of you know ele- elections every five years which allow Indian citizens to vote against the government's uh, economic policies. But on the other hand, planning is also in some ways walled off from popular pressure, like in socialist countries, through the institution of the Planning Commission. So the Planning Commission is a technocratic body of unelected individuals that is meant to adjudicate uh, on these economic decisions at a remove from public pressure or from interest groups. And so my book tries to walk the line of exploring this fissure or this fracture that lies or runs through the Indian planning project, this dichotomy between its technocratic and its democratic avatars. And, and what it argues is that India was trying to put these two together in what I call an arranged marriage and one that was never quite resolved but was always in tension with each other. Um, I, I think that this extends not just to the nature of Indian planning, but to the nature of Indian statistics as well. Because as I said, uh, the, the kind of s- sample surveys that that India had, uh, that that Nobis pioneered, and through the Indian Statistical Institute and the National Sample Survey became institutionalized in the Indian state, this was associated more with Western liberal democracies. These are the kinds of projects that, uh, that 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 the united kingdom and and, uh, and the united states were embarking on though even they were learning from india at the time uh, in terms of how how to uh, how to uh, lay them out at, at as fast a scale as india was attempting to do it but on the other hand in 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 communist countries in the soviet union and and china sample serving was actually seen as a bourgeois and capitalist method and was rejected uh, both by the Soviet Union and uh, under Mao uh, in China in the 1950s, uh, and so again, once again, you see that India is trying to to uh, to, to to both combine a five-year planning project, which, which is associated with the Soviet Union and and China, but combining methods within the five-year plans that are associated with with economies that don't have uh, socialistic five-year plans, right? And so. Uh, in fact, uh, on 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 the on the ways in which uh, China developed its economic systems and deemed sample serving to be uh, anath- anathema to it ideologically, uh, I mean, I'd like to sort of flag the work of Arnob Koch, who's sort of written an excellent book on this.
0: It's funny you mentioned you mentioned the um, the Soviet Union and and China. A funny one of the funny um, uh, nuggets I pulled out from your book was the idea that uh that the idea of sample surveys was seen as uh, anti-marxist because of course marxism is all is all determinism you know it's all if you but probabilities don't play into it which I which I was very funny
1: <laughs> right right yeah uh, yeah there is no ro- there is no room for probability in a deterministic system yeah
0: um but 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 I want to maybe drill down a bit more into this into this connection you try to draw between uh between the economic planning and the development of kind of India's democracy. Um, and it's kind of kind of what, what the second half of your book deals with, which is kind of trying to um, ways to get the, the Indian populace to, to really get on board with these plans to, um, to encourage them to support the plans through uh, and, and to really kind of understand, I guess it, their goals um, through things like movies and films and posters and, and other various methods could could you could you talk a bit more about again this kind of attempt to kind of connect the planning and the and the democracy um sides of of india
1: yeah, absolutely uh, as i as I suggested earlier, my book is trying to explore this this uh, this tension between Planning in its technocratic uh, in its sort of in its technocratic realms and planning in its democratic avatar and the first half of my book really looks at this top down elite aspect of planning of setting up statistical systems of bringing India's first computers uh, and in this part. Uh, Because because of the way in which technocracy operates, ordinary Indians are quite nameless and faceless objects of the technocracy. But the second half of the book delves into the idea of democratic planning, as you suggest, this notion that planning was also a political project of participatory democracy. And this is what distinguishes in the eyes of the Indian state and of the Nehruvian government. It's what distinguishes Indian planning from planning in authoritarian contexts like that of China and the Soviet Union. And that India's brand of planning, India's brand of non-alignment in foreign policy and democratic planning at home is what India was offering as a beacon to the decolonizing third world. So this is the sort of grand vision of the the, the government in its own eyes. Uh, And democratic planning was this idea that Indian planning was fundamentally different from communist planning. And the reason... And I think that the reason the government focused on it and kept sort of talking about it in sort of endless rhetoric in the 1950s and 60s is because, one, I think that there was a genuine idealism, uh, some some my critics might say naivete, about the way in which democracy and popular participation uh, are necessary to make the plans uh, are truly democratic, to make the state truly democratic, to make this newly decolonized nation one that is participatory democracy, uh, and that uh, democracy came into real fruition only when citizens were aware of what the state was doing and participated in them enthusiastically. But apart from this idealism, I also think there is a realism uh, that is barely under the surface, and that realism is that the Indian state is too weak, Compared to the Chinese state or the Soviet state, to make these plans work, and that the state, the Indian state capacity is so poor that these plans ha- only have a shot at succeeding if you are able to generate mass enthusiasm about these planned projects, and in fact, not just have people saving in accordance to the way in which the government wants, in you know bonds or in 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 particular government schemes. Uh, you want them spending in accordance with the way in which the government wants. Uh, you want them to be agreeable to the idea of delaying consumer satisfaction, such that India can build up an industrial uh, sort of uh, industrial capacity. But you also want just voluntary participation, such that you have unremunerated contributions towards the plan, and that there is a realism about understanding that Indian plans, however technocratic, however technical just do not have a shot uh, uh, in the real world unless there are these voluntary contributions. And so the government goes to extraordinary lengths to publicize the plans. Uh, For example, I talk about these publicity officers that work, that travel uh, every few days uh, on bullock carts, on jeeps, on boats, on, uh, on carts, carrying publicity materials, spring projectors, uh, there's a whole separate song and drama division of uh, dramatic troops that are employed by the government of India to and are given, you know, you know, paper scripts of plays which, which, you know, uh, which blend with the with the goals of the five-year plan uh, and then perform these plays uh, and balance across the country. There was something called university planning forums by which the planning commission sought to reach out to the sort of the young intelligentsia students at at colleges and universities. Um, there was an entirely voluntary organization called the Bharat Sevak Samaj or the Indian Society, uh, uh, this sort of Indian Voluntary Society. Uh, and perhaps most intriguingly, uh, and something that perhaps we can talk about later, the Bharat Sadhu Samaj or the Indian Society of Ascetics. Uh, I look at uh, you know a range of documentary films produced by the Films Division of India, which are really fascinating, uh, one of which is about a um, a, a, a village being visited by an alien every five years. And while the villager complains to us, to the viewer, about how the five-year plans have done nothing for him, through the eyes of the alien, you can see how India is transformed. Um, and while the government's efforts at this uh, were a mixed bag and there was there were some successes but many failures as well, I think that another gauge to, to assess the extent to which planning seeped into the popular culture is by looking at what mass popular culture was at the time and to see if there was any effect of this publicity campaign by the government. And as I, and as I show in the book, there was. I mean, there, we have novels such as the very highly regarded Jhuta such um, which it came out in two parts in, in 1958 and 1960. We have plays like Humara Gaon, uh, all of which reflect uh, planned themes. We have Bollywood movies like Naya Dor with big film stars like Dilip Kumar. Char Dil Rahe, with other huge superstars like Raj Kapoor, shami Kapoor, Meena Kumari. There are Bollywood songs sung by, you know, uh, singers who are recognizable to almost any sort of Hindi speaker in, in North India today, like Lata Mangeshkar, Mohammed Rafi, Asha Bhosle, um, which, whose chorus is literally about the five-year plan, the Panch Yojana. And so I think that by looking at, at a combination of the government's own publicity or propaganda, and at the way in which it's reflected in popular culture, we get a sense of a uh, a public culture that is suffused with the language of the five year plans of planning.
0: you know I want to ask about one particular example of this that you mentioned in your answer, um which is uh the work with the sadhus, the holy men, to um, advertise the plant um which which uh I think even people at the time maybe maybe. Putting putting the spin on it, um, which was kind of the the nominally secular Congress Party um, adopting Hindu symbols and working with these holy men to um, to sell these plans to its population. Kind of how did how did religion end up kind of playing a role in the in at least the the advertising of of these of these policy plans?
1: This was actually perhaps the most surprising thing I found in the archive. Um, which is that the government of Jawaharlal Nehru, which is seen in India as a kind of secular or technocratic high-water mark, comparatively to other governments at least, um, was actually involved with Hindu ascetics or holy men in a campaign to spread the message of the five-year plans. And, you know, given that this book is about planning, I really did not expect to be writing about holy men or ascetics. But what happens, what I discovered is that in early 1956, a organization called the Bharat Sadhu Samaj or the Indian Society of Ascetics is established after a meeting between Congress politicians and these sadhus or Hindu ascetics at a Hindu temple, Birla Mandir, in Delhi. And despite the Prime Minister's, that is Nehru's, quite deep ambivalence about the venture, it was enthusiastically promoted by much more God fearing national figures like the President of India at the time, Rajiv Prasad and the Minister for Planning, Gulzar Lal Nanda. And the Samaj was, or the Bharat Sadhu Samaj was instituted on the belief, which was shared by both these Congress members and Hindu ascetics, that these holy men would help popularize the five-year plans amongst the country's very devout millions or hundreds of millions, right? That the technocratic language and discourse of planning that emanated from Yojana Bhavan, or uh, you know, the the, the the headquarters of the Planning Commission in Delhi, that that language was not a language that was likely to have any purchase or traction in the villages of India or the smaller towns of India amongst people who are mostly illiterate or uneducated and really not clued into what the government is doing, and that the way in which they could be drawn into this uh, idea of democratic planning is by um, in, uh, sort of interweaving into uh, into planning rhetoric ideas uh, of uh, religious popular culture, and so to to figures like Gulzar Lal Nanda, who was then the minister of industry and planning, um, and a very devout Hindu himself, this was a way by which you could link the lok, to the Parlok, which is linked this world to the next, that there was almost a spiritual dimension. To planning that if it was suffused with this language of uh, religion, specifically Hindu religion, and um, Nehru is after uh, a lot of cajoling by his minister, by ananda is somewhat convinced of it, though he remains very ambivalent. But what I trace through the um, through the and and so you have these quite you know amazing episodes in which you have Hindu holy men at something like the Kumbh Mela, which is a, you know a, 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 a a, the largest religious congregation in the world on the banks of the Ganga, the Ganges, uh, you would find these Hindu holy men talking about the five-year plan, which is ostensibly secular you know, and scientific, uh, but talking about it in the language of the Mahabharata or the Ramayana uh, Hindu epics. And what you'd find, though, is that there were critics of this even within the Congress Party. There were certainly critics of this within civil society. Many people at the time were disappointed uh, uh, and suspicious of Nehru for engaging uh, with, uh, with this at the, cult- at the cost of state secularism. Um, it, you would find that uh, even the Hindu right-wing, uh, Jan Sun at the time, was, uh, so, uh, was so sort of critical of the, the Congresses, what they thought of as the Congress's cynical use of these holy men, that they referred to these people as Congress sadhus, right, a sort of inversion of today's politics. But what I argue is that the Congress would find that this, um, this compromise on secularism would ultimately blow up in its face, because after years of associating itself with Hindu causes, it would find that it would that, that played into the hands of Hindu nationalist politics, which was the trump card of its rivals such as the Jansang and eventually the BJP, and that the summer the Sadhus or the holy men in this, this Sadhu Samaj would prove very hard to control and drag the Congress party into arenas where its secular commitments were always being threatened and its competitors were bound to succeed. So, for example, you see by 1966 there is the first attack on India's parliament. It's a violent attack. Um after a rally, after an anti-cow slaughter rally that is led by sadhus or Hindu holy men, many of whom are from the Bharat Sadhu Samaj. And the person who's forced to resign then is the home minister of India, who is in charge of law and order, is Lal Nanda, right? It's sort of irony of his career that that, that, that he sort of unleashes this in some ways on the Indian Indian political sphere, and he, the sort of the chickens come home to roost, or the cows in this case. Um, And by, you also see that uh, in 1964, with the founding of the ultra-right-wing organization, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, the VHP), one of the founding vice presidents of it is a man named Sant Kroji Maharaj. And Santu Maharaj is again a, a, one of the founding members of the Bharat Sadhu Samaj, which was associated with the Congress Party, whereas the VHP, as you know, most Indians know, is associated with the Hindu right-wing and the BJP today. You'd also find that in an echo of contemporary politics that the Bharat Sadhu Samaj, which began as a venture by the Congress party to promote the five-year plans, by the late 1980s and the 1990s, it is endorsing causes that are very much the centerpiece uh, of the BJP's electoral campaign, which is that of uh, bringing down uh, the Babri Masjid in Ayodhya and building a temple instead.
0: So I want to now kind of maybe continue kind of moving forward to to the present day um with with maybe with maybe two related questions um you know how did these plans um i guess eventually come to an end i think india doesn't doesn't do these policy plans anymore um and where does that leave the state of in in, in- indian planning today
1: yes planning comes to an end in india with um With the election of Narendra Modi as prime minister in 2014, during his Independence Day speech on August 15th, uh, uh, 2014, he makes it clear in his his speech from the ramparts of the Red Fort, as all Indian prime ministers do, he makes it clear in his speech that the time uh, has come to shutter the planning commission. And this is, was something that was widely expected by many political observers. It was seen as Narendra Modi's rejection of a Nehruvian past. He's uh, putting his stamp on the Indian economy uh, and uh, sort of turning, uh, sort of turning to a new chapter in the, in the Indian economy. In some ways, uh, you know, though historians don't believe in inevitability, it was always extremely probable that Modi would do away with planning, and this was for several reasons. One is that it is it is. It is believed that Modi had a personal grouse against the Planning Commission, and that that grouse was that, a personal or professional grouse against the Planning Commission, which is that as a very popular chief minister of a state, Gujarat, from 2001 to 2014, uh, like all chief ministers, he had to go, uh, as the expression goes, hat in hand, to New Delhi, to Yojana Bhavan, uh, to a technocrat who was the deputy chairman of the Planning Commission, and plead for uh, you know outlays of funds for his state. Right, and that this is something that that not just Modi, who is an enormously powerful and and popular chief minister, but other chief ministers of other states also chafed at. That they did not think that unelected technocrats should be having this kind of power over the purse strings, over and over them. Apart from that, um, it, Modi's populist politics and his anti uh, sort of anti intellectual and anti technocratic um, instincts always suggested that. Um, a, a body that was associated with, with technocracy like the Planning Commission was going to be targeted, though he has replaced it with something which is very similar but rebranded called the Nitya Yog. Uh, and we see some of the, his, his uh, instincts towards anti-technocracy and anti-intellectualism uh, with things such as, uh, with, you know, uh, huge and um, failed projects like demonetization uh, in India. Um, and lastly, as I said, there was a desire to eclipse a Nehrubian legacy, whether that was for the better or for the worse, and and this was a way by which he could, with as with many other things, he could signal that India was moving on from a Nehrubian past. Regarding the state of Indian statistics today, um, I'd say that that uh, and, and I'm not a I'm not a statistician and I'm not an economist, but judging from the response uh, and the reporting uh, done by. Uh, Sort of business journalists, it it appears that India's statistical infrastructure is um, in a quite in a in a very troubling state, uh, and this is something that has been commented on widely. Last year, for example, The Economist carried a piece that described India's statistical system, uh, 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 one, India's statistical system as once being a vaunted statistical system, but today as being crumbling. Over the last five years, we've discovered, as I said in the book, that good data isn't always good politics. And so we've seen national sample survey results suppressed. We've seen certain other studies discontinued. And when the findings of these discontinued studies or these suppressed studies have been leaked, it's become clear that it is when or just coincidentally just when the survey showed uh, record unemployment or declines in household spending And the pity of it is that as a result, we don't have a firm baseline for assessing the levels of Indian poverty or unemployment. And so when when the Indian government makes claims about these, about poverty reduction or unemployment reduction, um, it is not to say that it's always untrue, but it's just that we do not have a yardstick by which to judge it, whether it is true or not. And, And therefore we have good reason to be suspicious of what any state puts out uh, as, as claiming achievements without offering uh, independent uh, researchers access to the same data. And these criticisms have come from professional economists and statisticians ranging from the left to the right. It, it goes from Jean Dres and Arvind Subramaniam to Raghuram Rajan, Koshik Basu, Abhijit Sen, Abhijit Banerjee, uh, and international uh, economists like Angus Deaton, Esther Duflo, Thomas Piketty. And, and, and to sort of sum up, while... While Indian statistics um, have never entirely been immune from government interference, it does appear that, that more recently this has escalated, uh, and this is uh, quite to the detriment of all Indian citizens.
0: So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Nikhil Menon, author of Planning Democracy, Modern India's Quest for Development. Nikhil, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be?
1: Uh, thanks. Uh, people can find my work. This book, uh, "Planning Democracy," has been published by Cambridge University Press um, uh, outside of South Asia, and by Penguin in South Asia with slightly different subtitles. Mostly the same book. Um, um, other work of mine, uh, I've, I've written for outlets like the BBC, The Express. Uh, the Hindu business line, uh, scroll.in, the Caravan magazine. Uh, So those are some of the places that people can find my sort of uh, non-academic writing. And uh, I guess for academic writing, uh, JSTOR would be the place to go. Um, uh, Coming to my next, uh, to where my interests are moving uh, looking forward, uh, I think that my next book is going to be a, a, a history of Indian cultural diplomacy and soft power projects from independence onwards. So what I'd like to do is to write a history of the ways in which India, though it emerges in 1947 as a overwhelmingly poor uh, and militarily weak country, um, wants to punch above its weight in terms of international soft power and cultural diplomacy. And I want to look at the ways in which uh, the Indian state tries to do so from independence and the 1950s until the present and try to look at the different ways in which the ideologies of different governments are reflected in the kinds of uh, soft power pushes made globally.
0: Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. Asia. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Review of Books podcast is on all our favorite podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Join us next week for a conversation with Meinardone, author of *Welcome Me to the Kingdom*. But before then, Nikhil, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you so much, Nicholas.